0: So, last week, um, we got back from our holidays, which was lovely in Hawaii, and um, it was lovely that David uh, was able to preach um, so that we could we didn't have to work on the sermon while we were in Hawaii, and uh, David preached a sermon about origins, and he preached about how we have a choice between believing in creation and intelligent design versus believing that we have evolved through chance and through all the right things happening. um, And he calculated, well, an evolutionary biologist has calculated the chance of evolution resulting in the life we have today is 1 in 100 trillion. And so we have a choice between two beliefs. They both require faith, one to believe that God created, one to believe that we have evolved through chance. And the question remains for us to answer for ourselves, is everything we see a result of incredible luck or providence? And how can we know the difference? And by the way, after, after last uh, week's service, Ketson um, puts all the sermons online uh, for the online um, v- viewers to be able to watch afterwards. And he said, hey, last week was our 200th podcast and upload um, as a church. So 200 sermons are on the pod- podcast that you can listen to, or on YouTube for you to watch. And so that was pretty special. Um, so today's the 201st. Um, but you know, looking back at 200 weeks that we have been together as a church since we started, everything that we've been through, everything that has been gifted to us, was it all incredible luck, right? Like this free building that where we can worship— incredible luck or divine guidance. And it's a choice that we have to make as we view the world every day. Blaise Pascal was a philosopher, a mathematician, and physicist, and he presented what's called the Pascal Wager. You might have heard of it. He basically said, hey, there's no way to prove that God exists. Right? There's no way to prove that God doesn't exist. So every human being is betting with their life, whether or not, God exists. He said, if you live as if God doesn't exist, but then He does, you're going to have infinite loss. But if you live as if God does exist, but He doesn't, you might have lost a little bit, you know, temporary pleasures, or, you know, you might have sacrificed a bit. But He says, you have eternal gain if it turns out that He does exist. So He said, you know what? A rational person should live as though God does exist and seek to believe in him because there's infinite gains and very little loss if he doesn't exist. And that's called Pascal's wager. Australians love to wager. This is Melbourne Cup weekend, and lots of Australians this weekend are going to lose money. According to data collected um, by the Queensland Government Statistics Office, which is uh, apparently the most comprehensive snapshot of gambling in Australia, Australians wagered in 2016, over the four-day Melbourne Cup uh, weekend, $657 million. And then if you add all the various sporting bets and pokies and lottos and all that, in the 2016-2017 financial year, so in 365 days, Australians gambled away $209 billion. Did you know that... um, the economic developments, you know, developers' calculation of how much money would it take to end poverty in the world, right? They've done this. Jeffrey Sachs, um, he has done the calculations. And he has concluded that to end poverty in the entire world, you need $175 billion per year for 20 years, and that will end poverty forever. Australians spent well over that in one year in gambling, When averaged out across the entire adult population in one year, Australians bet across the nation, um, averaged out per person $11,000. That's how much they bet. Making Australia the most gambling nation in the world. Did you know that? (laughs) We are, um, according to the losses especially, we have lost in 2017, the amount of money Australians lost in gambling was 40% higher than the next highest nation, which is Singapore. Okay, So we are by far the most gambling and the most loss of gambling, um, money lost due to gambling in the world. After Singapore, um, you have, for example, the U.S. We, Australia gambles and loses twice as much as Americans and three times the level in the U.K. It's pretty startling, isn't it? Australians, uh, someone once said that, you know, Australians look at Americans and say, oh, you guys are so blind about guns and gun control. But they say that's kind of like how gambling is for Australians. They're like, don't touch the gambling, you know. And there's a lot of politics with that. Um, But it's a real issue. So much money is lost. Can you imagine if every Australian had extra $11,000 per year to spend? If gambling um, was controlled and, 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 uh, and dealt with better. Today I wanna present to you that there is a much better way to live. Instead of, instead of you know, wagering on things that despite the best odds are not gonna guarantee you, right? The reward that you're looking for. That there's a better way to live in which you know that yes, there are odds stacked against you, but you can have a confidence, you can have a faith that things will turn out the way you expect. And it's better than Pascal's wager because I want to suggest to you that if you live your life not just as if God exists, but expecting God to show up, right? So it's it's more than just a, oh, God exists, but it's actually expecting God to show up, expecting God to perform miracles, expecting God to Come and and be a part of your life and answer your prayer requests. That when you live in this great expectation of Him, He actually has space to act in your life. We often want God to prove Himself. Then we'll believe, right? God, if you if you prove to me that you exist, if you prove to me that you love me, if you prove to me that you you know um, that you're actually acting in history, then I will give my life to you. But God does something very interesting. He says, I want you to follow me, to believe me, to trust me, and do what I ask you to do. Then you will see that I'm real. For example, this is what he says. This is Jesus speaking to the disciples. He says, those who accept my commands and obey them are the ones who love me. And because they love me, my Father will love them. And I will love them and reveal myself to each of them. So this is this is the opposite of what we expect. You know, we want God to prove himself, then we will enter into relationship with him. But God says, "Enter into a relationship with me, then you'll see that I am real." And the reason is this. He says people who aren't spiritual can't receive the truth from God's spirit. It all sounds foolish to them, and they can't understand it. For only those who are spiritual can understand what the spirit means. In other words, when you are open to what God has to share, right? When you have dialed into that frequency of what God is trying to tell you and you're actually willing to listen and follow through, God can can speak to you. But if you're not willing to listen and, and you already are coming with an attitude of skepticism, that even if God is speaking to you, you're not going to listen and you're not going to follow through. Only those who enter into faith, into a relationship with God, accepting his commands and following them, can understand God. You have to try it to believe it. You have to do it to know it. And the reason is this. God has proven over and over again in history that he exists and that he cares and that he's powerful. And despite the miracles, despite his revelations, people still choose to follow their own desires humans and demons alike the bible says you believe that there is one god good even the demons believe that and shudder you see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone as the body without the spirit is dead so faith without deeds is dead in other words god says i don't i don't need more people who believe that i exist Because belief alone that God exists does not transform us, right? The demons know that God exists, but that hasn't changed their choices. He says, what I need you to do is actually obey, actually follow through with what I'm sharing with you. Because only when you're living out the principles that God has will you realize, oh, God's way is so much better than my way. God's way is so much better than the world's way. And it's only when you have that shift in thinking and where you come to trust in God, where you, where you, where you, where you have proven for yourself and experienced for yourself that God is love, that God can recreate us, that we become more like him. Then he has disciples and not just believers, right? Because there's plenty of believers who in God's name do horrible things, <laughs> Right? We don't have to go through history. We don't have to go through the individual things in our lives. We all know that, yeah? even in our own lives. We can be believers of God and do and, and not act like God at all and action contrary to what God stands for. So what God needs are not just people who acknowledge he exists and not just people who acknowledge he exists um, and even acknowledge who he is and his wonderful character, but then don't follow through and obey him. Because the world will then just be full of hypocrites who are going to continue the bad reputation of Christianity. And this is why God says, hey, just try. Just follow through. Just obey. And as you step into the waters, right, as you obey his commands, you will then experience the miracles. You will then see the revelation of God. Faith is not just a mental belief but an attitude. A worldview that shapes our choices and our actions. And that's why James says faith without works is dead. James had said, Hey, you wanna you wanna show me your faith? Show me your works, right? Because belief alone is not going to change who you are. Our actions, our choices matter because those choices invite God into our lives and give Him space to recreate us, to act in our lives, permission to do something exciting and uh, adventurous for us. Our obedience and faith builds a two-way relationship that not only transforms us into his likeness, but it actually allows him to rewrite our life stories. So we go from being the ones in the background, the ones in the sideline, to being the main character of an amazing story. Heroes in history are born because when faced with great odds, they didn't take the safe path, they chose courage, they chose faith, and they triumphed against all odds. Have you heard of David and Goliath? David was the youngest of eight sons, born in Bethlehem. He was born around 1035 B.C., and during that time, there was a king of Israel named Saul, and he was the first king. And one of his main jobs was to go in battle against the enemy nation, Philistine, the, Ph- the Philistine um, nation. And so Saul's army and the Philistine army is in battle. And David's three oldest sons, Eliab, Abinadab, and Shemaiah have gone to fight in this battle. Being the youngest, David is left in charge of all the sheep. So he's taking care of the sheep, and his father comes to David and says, "Hey, David, worried about your brothers. I want to know they're safe. I want to make sure they're okay. Can you take them this, you know, basket of bread? Take some cheese for the captain. You know, put in a good word. Make sure that he, you know, the captain treats the boys well, and come back and report to me how they're doing." So David goes. And when he gets to uh, where his brothers are and where the Israelite army is camped, oops, sorry, that's from last time, um, he, he, he finds out that there's a very interesting situation. The Israelite army is actually not fighting the Philistines. Something has happened. So we read, this is in 1 Samuel chapter 17, David left the sheep with another shepherd and set out early the next morning with the gifts as Jesse, his father, had directed him. He arrived at the camp just as the Israelite army was leaving for the battlefield with shouts and battle cries. Soon, the Israelite and Philistine forces stood facing each other, army against army. And now you expect them to start fighting. But they don't. David left his things with the keeper of supplies, hurried out to the ranks to greet his brothers. As he was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, came out from the Philistine ranks. Then David heard him shout his usual taunts to the army of Israel. Goliath was a giant, um, he was between six to nine feet tall. Okay, there's a little bit of speculation, uh, of, of controversy about whether he was um, six or nine feet tall, uh, according to how you read the text. But he was tall. Okay, that's, that's way taller than um, every other person at that time. And every day, he basically would come out and say, I'm going to be challenging you to a special fight. Basically, you guys pick a champion, and whoever that champion is, if they win against me, all of us will be your slaves. But if your champion beats me, right? Did I say that right? If your champion beats uh, me, Goliath says, we'll be your slaves. But if I beat you, then you all will be my slaves, was the challenge. And every day he would come out, and every Israelite would run away in fear. And then he would mock them and say, ha, nobody's brave enough to come out. And then he would you know, do his thing, walk around. Mock them and then go back, and every day he was doing this. So David witnesses this, and he says, "Hey, why isn't anyone coming forward to fight Goliath?" And people are like, "Ah, uh, he's really big." And you know, you can imagine he's got armor on. He he's ferocious. You know, I was watching. You know how the New Zealand teams they do their haka. Like it's intimidating, right? Can you imagine a giant coming out and doing his thing, and the Israelites cowering in fear, running away? Everyone is afraid, even the king Saul. And the Bible says that Saul was a head taller than every other Israelite. So if anyone should have been the champion of Israel, it should have been Saul. He's the tallest, he's their king, that's his job. But Saul had become complacent and afraid. He didn't want to risk his life, his throne, his comfort, right? He had too much to lose. So he waits for someone else to step forward, and he even offers a reward. He says, hey, whoever goes and and wins against Goliath, he can marry my daughter. And he says, also, that man's entire family will be tax exempt." Right? He gives that reward, hoping that somebody will step forward. Maybe one of you would step forward if you could be tax exempt right? your entire family, for the rest of your life. But no one is willing to take up that challenge. Too much to lose, except for young David. This is what he says. When he hears the challenge, he says, don't worry about this, Philistine, David told Saul. I'll go fight him. Don't be ridiculous, Saul replied. There's no way you can fight this Philistine and possibly win. You're only a boy, and he's been a man of war since his youth. But David persisted. I have been taking care of my father's sheep and goats, he said. When a lion or a bear comes to steal a lamb from the flock, I go after it with a club and rescue the lamb from its mouth. If the animal turns on me, I catch it by the jaw and club it to death. I've done this to both lions and bears, and I'll do it to this pagan Philistine too, for he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the claws of the lion and bear will rescue me from this Philistine. Saul finally consented. All right, go ahead, he said, and may the Lord be with you. He's all they've got. No one else has stepped forward. And Saul tries to put his armor on David to at least, you know, prolong the battle a little bit, he thinks. But David tries it on. It's clunky. It doesn't fit him right. So he says, forget that. He says, I don't need that. And he goes out to the the stream, picks five stones, takes his sling and his shepherd's staff, and he walks across the valley to meet Goliath. Here's Goliath's response. Goliath walked out towards David with his shield bearer ahead of him. So Goliath not only has his w- armor, he's even got a shield bearer who carries his shield in front of him. Goliath s- starts sneering in contempt at this ruddy-faced boy. Am I a dog, he roared at David, that you come at me with a stick? And he cursed David by the names of his gods. Come over here and I'll give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals, Goliath yelled. Okay? This would have been a great time for David to stop and reconsider what are my odds of winning this battle, right? But that's not how David responds. David replied to the Philistine, you come to me with sword, spear, and javelins, right? It's all the weapons. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. Today, the Lord will conquer you, and I will kill you and cut off your head. Then I will give the dead bodies of your men to the birds and wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. And everyone assembled here will know that the Lord rescues his people, but not with sword and spear. This is the Lord's battle, and he will give you to us. What faith that this young man had, coming with a sling and a staff against Goliath with all his weapons and all his armor and all his experience, The Bible says that as Goliath is coming, he's thinking to himself, this will be easy, right? He's thinking this will be over. But while he's coming over, running towards David, David takes out the stone, slings it around, throws it. The stone hits uh, Goliath on the forehead. The stone sinks in, and he falls over dead. And everyone is just stunned on both sides. And then the Israelites are like, rah! And then they come over and they win the battle. (laughs) can you imagine right if australians had been there we would have wagered on 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 what are the chances of this young man winning right very low everything was against him his brothers were furious with him his oldest brothers were like david get over here what are you doing right they're furious with him even king saul even though he said okay you can go he's like thinking great now i'm gonna have to send a condolence package to his family like he's already thinking this is not going to end well the only one who had faith was this young boy who says the battle is not mine the battle is the lord's and he's going to win it was david being presumptuous was he just a young know-it-all no david says look I know that God promised us victory. So he's going to give it to us. And for him, he knows it's not about me. He's not saying I'm the best. He's saying God has delivered me in the past. He's going to do it again. God has promised us victory. So he's going to pull through. Against all odds, God is always going to pull through. We can always claim God's promises. Promises of healing, protection, salvation, restoration. We can claim these promises in faith. Knowing that, it might not always happen in the timeline that we expect, in the way that we expect. But God has promised all those things to us if we trust in him. About 500 years after Goliath died, another man taunted the world with his ego Not a giant, but a king who has a giant ego and wants to show everybody how wonderful he is. Nebuchadnezzar was the king of Babylon, and he built a golden image 27 meters high in the plain of Dura around 585 BC. And he said, I want everybody in my province to come. And when the music is played, bow down to this statue of myself to show your allegiance, right? to worship me. So everyone does, because if you don't, he has threatened to put you in the burning, fiery furnace. Except three young men. These three young men were Hebrew boys who had been taken captive from Israel. So in 500 years history, Saul, king, David, king, lots of kings come and go. Israel rebels against God. Long story short, these boys are in Babylon. And because of their wisdom, because they're trusting God, they have been made into officials into, in the government. But they had made it clear that their allegiance was to God first and foremost. So here they are. Everyone is bowing down. And you can imagine these three men standing up, sticking out like a sore thumb. The king orders them to come. And he, he gives them a second chance. He's like, look, I'm a merciful guy. Maybe you didn't understand. Maybe you didn't hear the music. I'm giving you a second chance. When the music plays, bow down and worship the, the golden statue. He's saying, worship me in my image. And the men don't. This is what they say. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied, O oh Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God whom we serve is able to save us. He will rescue us from your power, your majesty. But even if he doesn't, we want to make it clear to you, your majesty, that we will never serve your gods or worship the gold statue you have set up. This is the faith of these men. He know, they know that Nebuchadnezzar has this burning fiery furnace ready to go. It's blazing. There's no way they can fight against all the soldiers. They know that the odds are stacked against them. But they say with confidence, God is still able to deliver us. And not only that, even if he doesn't, right? They recognize maybe God has a bigger plan. And they're, not, they're saying, even if he doesn't deliver us, we are still going to be faithful. Because they know that even after death, there's going to be a resurrection. The king is so furious that he orders that the furnace be made seven times hotter, right? In other words, he's saying, you know what? The odds were against you this much. I'm going to make it impossible for you to be saved. And so then they get thrown in and you would think at this point the story's over god didn't save them that's that and you know what the reality is for a lot of us that's all we get to see we see so many faithful men and women who gave god their all and bad things happen and they die and we that's that's all the story we get to see in here and we think god didn't come through but there's more to the story and We get the privilege of glimpsing the rest of the story here. After they get thrown in, suddenly Nebuchadnezzar jumps up. In amazement, exclaims to his advisors, didn't we tie up three men and throw them into the furnace? Yes, your majesty, we certainly did, they replied. Look, Nebuchadnezzar shouted. I see four men, unbound, walking around the fire, unharmed, and the fourth looks like a god. Then Nebuchadnezzar came as close as he could to the door of the flaming furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here, because the fire is so strong that Nebuchadnezzar can't come any closer to talk to them because he'll die. So he says, you come out. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stepped out of the fire. Then the high officers, officials, governors, and advisors crowded around them and saw that the fire had not touched them. Not a hair on their heads were singed and their clothing was not scorched. They didn't even smell of smoke. The only thing that burnt up in there were the ropes that had bound them. Because of their great faith in God, yes, they got thrown into the fire, but God showed up. There was a fourth person in there. God himself was walking with with uh, these three young men. What did they talk about? Who knows? The Bible doesn't say But can you imagine the experience that they had being able to see God, being able to walk with God in that fire, knowing that he showed up. And it was Nebuchadnezzar who called them out of that fire. The very one who had put them in, in the end, ends up confessing, your God is the only God that can rescue you like this. And Nebuchadnezzar himself comes to believe in God through this experience. Sometimes we don't get to have that resurrection experience until the second coming of Jesus. But this story is there to remind us that even when he doesn't deliver us immediately, that he will deliver us for eternity. And this, fire here, uh, this story is here to remind us that we go through the fires of trials in life. We go through really difficult times. Life is not easy here on earth. But the promise of God is that through that fire, God walks with us. He shows up, and he is there to encourage us and to make sure that the fire, even though it's difficult, that we can come out of it with only the bonds that that held us burnt up and being able to walk freely in faith and peace that ultimately God is in control. Perhaps you have Goliaths in your life today, obstacles that cause fear and anxiety that seem to be blocking you from your future. Perhaps you have Nebuchadnezzars in your life today, people who threaten or trouble you. I want to encourage you that God can take you from a place where it seems like everything against you, right? The odds are stacked against you, but God can deliver like no one can. If you are willing to try and follow God and actually do what he asks you to do, you're going to experience that God shows up. There's a verse that I really like in Psalms. It says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Oh, the joys of those who take refuge in him. Fear the Lord, you his godly people, for those who fear him will have all they need. Even strong lions, young lions sometimes go hungry, but those who trust in the Lord will lack no good He says, taste and see. You know, my boys, they hate trying new things. You know, I'll make something and I I, I think it tastes pretty good. I put it in front of them. They look at it and they go, yuck, right? They're like, nope. And I tell them, no, it's actually really good. You've never had this before. Try it. They're like, nope. They've already made up their minds. It's not going to be good. They're not going to like it. So I have to bribe, wheedle, threaten, you know, to, to, to get them to at least try it. Sometimes I have to even have to sing that song. Um, you know how I told you I make up songs. But there's a song from Daniel Tiger that, um, thanks to Emma, that I, I got to learn. And it's like, it says, um, it's good to try new food because it might taste good. Right? And there's a whole thing. And so I sing it. I do everything to get them to just try it. Right? So it, it kind of makes it, you know, eventually, like it makes it to their mouth. But they don't want to, like, open their mouth and chew. So they just kind of, like, like, smear it onto, onto their lips, like, barely touch it. And like, nope, don't like it. And I'm like, no, you haven't tried it, right? And sometimes, if it's, depending on the texture, if it's actually left something on their lips and they accidentally, like, lick it, they're like, hmm, right? I'm like, it's good, isn't it? Right? And they're like, yeah, right? Or they'll, like, barely... um. Like lick it and then and I'm like no you gotta actually put in your mouth and chew it then you'll know what it actually tastes like and sometimes they change their mind yeah it's good and they'll eat the rest of it and sometimes our spiritual experience with God is like like my children right God is saying hey Christianity when it only works if you are wholeheartedly following me but if you're just like dabbling in it putting on your lips but not actually putting in your mouth and chewing right if you're if you if you Follow God a little bit, but you don't actually embrace and obey what he has commanded you in the Bible, right? In its fullness, then, yeah, you probably won't like it because you haven't experienced it. You haven't actually given it a whole go. God says, taste, right? Put, put everything I've commanded you. And I love how in the Bible there's actually uh, an instance where he gives one of the prophets the written words of God. and it says, eat the book. And he has to actually put it in his mouth and physically chew it up and digest it. And it's a metaphor that God, God used this prophet for to say, I want you to take it in, right? take everything I, I command you, take it in, obey it, digest it into your life, act it out, follow through. Then you'll see that the Lord is good. Then you'll know the plans I have for your life. We'll never know the full goodness of God by just looking at him, by just believing in him. It's only when we enter into that committed relationship with him that we get to know God, that we get to experience him, and then we become wholeheartedly devoted to him. He says, if you look for me wholeheartedly, you will find me. I will be found by you, says the Lord. Right? God God makes it um difficult, not because He doesn't want us to find Him, but because He wants us, through that persistent uh, search for Him, go into it with our whole hearts. Because it's only when we go into it with our whole hearts that we get that full experience of God. He says, keep on asking, and you will receive what you're asking for. Keep on seeking, and you will find. Keep on knocking, and the door will be open to you. For everyone who asks, receives. Everyone who seeks, finds. And to everyone who knocks, the door will be opened. You see, God knows that faith is not easy. He knows that doubts and fears are are part of that process and that it's not easy to trust in God. And that's why God makes this a process, a journey, a relationship where we learn step by step to trust in him more. Faith is not the lack of fear and doubt. Faith accepts the odds but chooses to believe anyway that God is greater. You know, um, when Roy preached about faith a few months ago, he introduced you to this book. And um, I hadn't read it until recently. I love it. <laughs> I highly recommend it. It's called When I Try to Believe by Nathan Brown. And we've got a few copies of it in the church libraries if you would like to borrow it. Um, it's in the back. Um, and if you, if, if all of them have already been borrowed out, just talk to me and I've got a few with me today. This book is great because it explains how faith is a process. It is a journey. It's not easy. And he talks about some of the reasons why he has chosen to believe. And um, I highly recommend it to anyone um, who's interested. But one of the things that struck me about the book is that it was talking about how faith acknowledges, right, acknowledges that our feelings, like Kelly was sharing earlier, our feelings are in conflict with what is right and faith is that extra step of saying you know what i don't feel like going to church or i don't feel like obeying god i don't feel like reading my bible i don't feel like praying but i trust and believe that it's going to be better for me because that's what god has promised and following through with that right despite the feelings, despite the odds, following through and and obeying God and following him is going to then lead to that experience where we we realize, oh yeah, I'm really glad I came. I'm really glad I read the Bible. I'm really glad I prayed because it did make a difference in my life. In Hebrews chapter 11, there's the famous faith chapter. It says, faith shows the reality of what we hope for. It is the evidence of things we cannot see. It was by faith that Abraham obeyed when God called him to leave home and to go to another land that God would give him as his inheritance. He went without knowing where he was going. And even when he reached the land, God promised him he lived there by faith, for he was like a foreigner living in tents. And so did Isaac and Jacob, who inherited the same promise. Abraham and all the generations after him, they lived in the land, never seeing the fulfillment of what God promised. God had said, this is going to be your land. But it never became their land until, like, Hundreds of years later. But it says these people died still believing that what God had promised them. They did not receive what was promised, but they saw it from afar uh, and welcomed it. They agreed that they were foreigners and nomads here on earth, but they were looking for a better place, a heavenly homeland. That is why God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Faith believes that even though doing the right thing, Means that sometimes you lose out. Faith believes that it is still worth it because you're going to have in- integrity, you're going to have character, that you're going to have um, a reward, that you're going to have God um, in that relationship. Faith believes that even though following Jesus' commands are countercultural they require sacrifice, that it's going to lead to a happier, more meaningful life in the long term. So, where do we start? All of us have one thing, probably more than one thing, but at least one thing that we know that God has asked of us, but that we haven't yet taken that step of faith to follow. Perhaps it's about forgiving someone. Perhaps he's calling us to change our careers. Perhaps he's asking us to show care to someone that we've lost in touch with. Perhaps. It's inviting someone to church. Or perhaps it's about giving back, tithe, 10% of your income. Perhaps it's about making that leap of faith and committing in baptism. There's something that God has asked of each one of us that in the past we have been afraid to do. We've calculated and we've thought, too much to lose, too difficult. But I want to encourage you today. God is the sure thing. God's promises are certain. If you step out in faith and obey that one thing that God is pressing on your heart, it's going to result in the end in such a way that you will have no regrets. I was reading this week um, an article that someone wrote. She's a... Relative care nurse, so she has seen hundreds of people die, right? She cares for them until the end. And she wrote this article about kind of the, the, the regrets and the, and the kind of the things that pe- as people as they die, they say. And one of the top things on, the, on their list is, I wish I had done things differently to make better choices to be happier. Right? And one of the choices they say is, I wish I had worked less. People spend so much of their lives just working. They said, I wish I had spent more time with my loved ones. I wish I had told them that I loved them. I wish I had followed my dreams instead of doing what others expected of me. These were some of the things that they said. There's something that God is calling each one of us to do. And it's difficult. It's challenging. It's hard because maybe it's something that others, you know, we're afraid of what others might say if we do that. We're afraid of what might happen, right, to our financial security or to our, to our life goals, right, if we do that. But I want to challenge and encourage you that the God of David, the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, he's the one who can deliver. He's the one who can take your life and give you that true, meaningful purpose, And at the end of your lives, you will not have any regrets if you go all in on God. There's nothing that is more important in your life to choose today than making that choice to follow God wholeheartedly. And I pray that as you reflect and pray during the song of reflection, um, that you will make that decision today to say, God, that thing that I've been scared to give you, that thing that I've been afraid to follow in, follow through on, I'm going to trust you today. And I'm going to follow and obey. And I pray that as a result of that decision you make today, that you will experience God showing up in your life in a more tangible, powerful way than you've ever had before. And that you'll be able to experience God and taste and see his goodness. So I'm in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, Help us to take that step of faith and to go all in on you so many times in the past we've we've failed in our in our Christian experience, and we think, "Oh it's not working for me or I don't really see or experience God, but Father, forgive us for for having dabbled or having half heartedly followed you, but Father, I pray that now. We would respond to your Holy Spirit asking us to go all in, to really give you all of our hearts, to give you all of our lives, and as a result to then experience you in your fullness, in your goodness, and to experience a life that is filled with meaning and purpose, a life that is devoted to seeing your goodness in others. And Father, I pray that as a result of of our our step in faith, we, we would experience a transformation and a recreation of our hearts and our lives, and that others would see that change, and and they would finally be able to ask, hey, what is it that you have? Tell me about your God. And Father, it is my prayer that our church, even though we're small, even though we have odds stacked against us, that we can be an agent of change in this city, that, Father, you can do amazing things through us, and we believe that, and we ask that you would use us. That's my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.